And now, broadcasting on StarWorldWideNetworks.com, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the Cannabis Reporter, Snowden Bishop. That's me. Thank you for joining us. Last week, we were fortunate to have a very candid conversation with two congressional candidates from Arizona who are vocal advocates of marijuana reform, planning to take the issue to Washington if they're elected and have that conversation on a national level. We also learned that marijuana reform was added to the Democratic national platform, which may come as no surprise for those who assume it's favored by more left-leaning progressives. With the exception of a handful of outspoken conservatives in the House and Senate, marijuana reform has mostly been a left-leaning issue. That's changing, thanks in part to people working to educate the public about the merits of regulating marijuana like alcohol. And that just happens to be the topic of today's show, and I'm really excited to introduce my guest. His name is J.P. Holyoke. He's the chairman of Arizona's campaign to regulate marijuana like alcohol, the legalization measure that'll be on the ballot in November here in Arizona. What may surprise you is that he's a conservative Republican whose career began in finance. He never smoked pot and wasn't an advocate until a very personal experience convinced him he should reconsider his position on cannabis. So I'd like to say hello. Thank you so much for being here, JP. Thanks for having me, Snowden. It's great to see you. Oh, it's good to see you too. So you have been very, very busy lately. I have been. It's been uh, been quite the adventure, uh, quite the ride. I am a a political neophyte. This is the first campaign that I've ever been involved with in any form. So I'm learning a lot. Sometimes I'm learning things the, the hard way. Yeah. Well... First thing is that you happen to be the chairman of the campaign to regulate marijuana like alcohol. That's correct, which yeah. means I really just have a giant target on my back for, for some of these, um, obviously, social conservatives that, that don't necessarily believe in individual freedom and responsibility. So I get to be the big pincushion. <laughs> That's not a bad place to be, though. And But you've also faced a little bit of opposition from those who are leaning toward more uh, liberal-minded regulation. Sure, I seem to be getting it from both ends of the spectrum these days. Yeah, but I wanted to congratulate you, though, on some of the pretty major achievements. And I saw a billboard campaign, actually, that speaks to the heart, I believe, of people who argue against regulation in that a lot of people say that legalizing marijuana is going to put marijuana squarely into the hands of children well they've they've been proven to be factually wrong on that matter when we look at colorado as an example we could we know that teen use in colorado today is lower than it was before they had their adult use legalization program which when you start thinking about these things critically in common sense terms it makes perfect sense so some would say that teen use in colorado is higher well they would be factually and statistically wrong in saying that 
it's actually dropped since they've introduced a tax and regulate structure. And today it's actually lower than the national average. So great things are happening on that front in Colorado. Do you think the reason that teen use is lower is because the street level dealer just doesn't have a place in a regulated market? That's absolutely right. When we look at black market dealers, they have every incentive to sell to teenagers or frankly anybody that's willing to pay them. When we move to a tax and regulate structure, we now have responsible businesses that are held accountable by the state and they have every incentive to keep it away from those teenagers. So ultimately what we're doing is we're putting those black market dealers out of business, moving this into a tax and regulated structure, and the results speak for themselves. It seems to be working quite well. Well, it seems to, and also I think that there have been a number of traditionally conservative people who have jumped on board. Like, for example, um, Ruben Gallegos, I believe. Ruben Gallegos. Gallegos, but it seems that he's endorsed the campaign. Yes, he has. endorsed the initiative. He uh, he, Ruben is somebody that's always been a champion of individual freedoms and individual responsibility. You know, from his from his education at Harvard to his time in the Marine Corps, where he was actually serving in a a combat duty role there. This is a guy that's always fought for freedom, and so we we owe him a debt of appreciation and gratitude, not just on this issue, but in everything that Ruben's done throughout his career. I know that there are some other pretty high-profile people as well who are endorsing this, um, somebody on the criminal justice level I was reading the other day, and I thought, wow, when you start to get people who are involved in, you know, like state attorneys, uh, Maricopa County Sheriff, favoring this as far as I know? We certainly, we have not received an endorsement from Sheriff Joe Arpaio. He hasn't come out against us either, so he seems to be indifferent or at least neutral on the issue. But we have actually received an endorsement from a couple of, of recently retired DEA agents. And, okay. and having DEA agents that spent their career fighting marijuana as well as other substances that are now looking back upon their careers and, and post-retirement coming out and saying, you know what, there's a better method, there's a better strategy, because the war on marijuana has been an abject failure. Marijuana prohibition has done nothing to keep marijuana away from anybody that wants it. Mm -hmm. So it's not even a question of marijuana is good or marijuana is bad or or whether there's a debate about the merits of marijuana, I think is really irrelevant only because prohibition has been such an abject failure. It's done nothing but cost, you know, time, money, energy, effort, and lives, meanwhile clogging up our criminal justice system for somebody that's consuming something that's objectively safer than alcohol. It's, it's asinine. It do, simply doesn't make any sense. And these DEA agents have had the, the fortitude and courage to come out and say, you know what, what we spent our careers on was a policy failure, and now they're trying to right those wrongs. And from a financial perspective, too, the cost of the war on drugs and how it's failed. I don't know exactly how many dollars have been spent on the war on drugs, but it's an astronomical amount of money. And we are trying to correct that. You know, this campaign takes, takes marijuana off of the criminal black market, where it's easily and readily available today, despite prohibition, instead puts it into a tax and regulated structure. And now we're, t- we're sending those tax dollars directly to our education system here in Arizona, funding our underfunded schools. They need every dollar that they can get. Instead of sending those dollars to Mexican drug dealers, cartels, and the criminal black market. Because that's really our choice. Do we want 
to fund our schools, or do we want to keep marijuana illegal for the enrichment of criminal drug dealers? Right. And legalizing it will absolutely cut their market in half. Uh, absolutely. No question about it. The, the number one profit center for these drug cartels is still marijuana. Now, that's representing a smaller and smaller percentage of their revenues. But according to the DEA itself, they're saying that approximately 60% of the profits of these drug cartels is derived from marijuana. Now, we're putting a big dent in that. We have four states here in the United States that currently have adult-use legalization, in addition to the states that have medical marijuana programs. And that's putting a significant dent into the cartels. That's a good start, but we need to do more of it. And instead of sending them the money, let's send it to our schools, send it to our kids, and make sure that they are able to get the best education we can offer. Now, how much of the policy that is the measure that will be on the ballot this year uh, was modeled after other states, Colorado, Oregon, Washington, Alaska? Certainly a significant part of it. We, you know, in, in every state that is enacted some form of adult use legalization. I think that there are things that we can learn from and things that we can improve upon. And so every state's going to be a little bit different. In addition to that, every state is culturally just a little bit different. What, what may be acceptable in one state wouldn't be passable in another state. So we have to modify these, these initiatives on a national basis to be able to meet the local needs. And, and that's, that's vitally important because I think that good governing and, and responsible legislation is adapted to the local population. Right. And also what will be palatable here versus what might be palatable politically in Colorado or some of those other states. No question. And that, and that certainly played a role in, in how we drafted this and some of the measures that are there. So how long did it take to do this? I mean, I know that there was an initiative several years ago with the last election that failed to get the number of signatures to actually make it on the ballot? Sure, and that, that's, a, that's a very common occurrence. And we can look at that in this election cycle also. There were actually about a half a dozen different marijuana-related initiatives that were filed with the Secretary of State's office. It, that's a very simple process. It's a very low-cost process. You can literally write one of these things on the back of a napkin and submit that to the Secretary of State. They will issue an identification number to that. That doesn't mean that it's a real campaign. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that it ever has a chance of qualifying for the ballot, much less even, even being uh, passable by the voters. So every single year, there are many of these things that are introduced. This is, this is simply the, the, the only one of this campaign cycle that has the opportunity to be heard right. by the voters. There was another one that came relatively close. So at the end of this, there were really two initiatives that were vastly different, really. I don't know how close they really were. Uh, they did not submit those signatures to Secretary of State. I have no idea if they had 10 signatures or 10,000 signatures. We needed to have 150,000 valid signatures to be able to qualify for the ballot. Our campaign turned in approximately 260,000 signatures. Right. So we well were, beyond what was needed. It, we were well beyond. And the, most, the great thing about that was that we, we saw the response from the voters. The voters said that they were eager to sign these petitions. They were glad to sign these petitions. And the process of collecting the signatures for this really wasn't a difficult challenge for us. It was a simple matter of be out there in the public because the pub, public was eager to sign the petitions. Right. And then when they saw the differences between the initiatives that were often um, vying for signatures in the same places, 
people could see that this one really did make sense in terms of how it would go over with Arizona voters. We try to craft this in a very responsible manner. And I've got to always look at myself and my situation to say, okay, you know, what would I want? Because I'm a married guy. I've got three young children. I know that regardless of this initiative passing or not, or any initiative passing, my children are going to be exposed to marijuana. I certainly was as a teenager. And so we want to craft legislation that's responsible and, and takes these these thoughts into consideration of what does this look like on a, on a going forward basis. There are some that will argue that, that our initiative is not liberal enough. I call that the, the free the weed crowd. Mm-hmm. And I share some of their sympathies and even agree with many of the things that they have to say. But I don't want marijuana on every other corner here in Arizona. And we have seen that in other states like Colorado, where they have an essentially an unlimited number of, of, these, of these establishments. And you oftentimes have them literally right next door to each other. And that creates an environment where it's pervasive. It's really put in, thrown out into your face. It's pervasive part of the culture with heavy advertising that goes with it. We looked at that and said, I looked at it personally and said, that's not something I want here in my home state. I don't want to see that here in Arizona. So we tried to craft something that, that was much more conservative, that was much more moderate, and something that's palatable to the voters so they don't feel like they have marijuana always out there and really in the public's eye all day, every day. And to those who were more of the free the weed crowd, what would you tell them the benefit of jumping on board this measure would be? Sure. This is, this is relatively simple. Arizona arrests approximately 14,000 individuals for simple marijuana possession every single year. That's 14,000 people a, a year people. being arrested for simple possession of marijuana. Now, simple possession is generally defined as very small amounts. Our initiative allows for an individual to possess up to an ounce of marijuana. That would cover probably, and I don't know the exact statistics here, only because they're not released by the, by the Arizona Department of Corrections, but that our best guess is that would cover about 98% of those 14,000 people that are charged in Arizona. Now, the charge also in Arizona is a felony. Oh. So how about 14,000 people not being charged with felonies for possessing and consuming something that's objectively safer than alcohol? If that's not reason enough to support this, I don't know what is. And also, I mean, if they're not happy with parameters of this particular measure... They can vote later to amend it in some way, shape, or form. But at least this starts the conversation and opens it up for not so much restriction in terms of medical. That's, I spoke with several mothers. I've spoken with a lot of mothers who are really challenged by the fact that the current medical marijuana law here in Arizona doesn't cover nearly enough childhood illnesses that could benefit from use of cannabis. I'm not a doctor. I cannot speak to, to the wide range of, of cannabis benefits. I, I, know, I know a lot about a very narrow subject matter on that as it relates to my own family, which is actually how I, how I got into this. Mm -hmm. um, so I can't speak to that. I just don't know enough. Uh, but I think what's important is, is that we are providing access. And on the medical side, 
we have had some challenges. We've had a state legislature that has tried to be as obstructionist as absolutely possible to this issue. They've tried to do everything in their power to raise the costs, basically creating barriers to entry to be able to, to receive that cannabis therapy. And, and we can look at some of the simple stuff. The, the simple cost of obtaining a medical marijuana card, currently you're going to pay the state about $150. Mm-hmm. Now, if it's a pediatric that's also... A pediatric would then require a caregiver. That caregiver card that accompanies that is another $250. So you're looking at some pretty significant dollars to merely have the privilege of being able to walk into a medical marijuana dispensary to purchase the medicine that works best for you. That's the equivalent of saying, hey, you're going to have to pay me you know, several hundred dollars to have the privilege of being able to purchase your medicine from Walgreens. That's right. patently absurd. Yeah. And the purpose of those costs was really to cover the administration of the program with the Department of Health Services. Now, the program is running a surplus budget. My understanding right now is that they've got a surplus budget right now of about $12 million. That's $12 million that was collected off of the backs of patients that are, that are needing this medication. Now, I can understand covering their costs. That's reasonable, that's expected, and it should be done. But when they're running a $12 million budget surplus, they're not covering costs. Now they're creating barriers to entry and taxation of medicine. Yeah. Do you feel that that was put in place to limit the number of people? Like if they have a medical uh, issue, they really have to fight hard to get their medical card. Do you think it was to limit the amount of people who pursued that? I think that that was part of the conversation. I, I think that the Arizona Department of Health Services and the director at the time was Director Will Humble. I think Will was overall extremely responsible in trying to implement this in a very fair, unbiased fashion. He truly was a, uh, a great public servant. The Department of Health Services uh, was lucky to have him. The state of Arizona was lucky to have him. But certainly, he's a governor appointee, and he had his own political pressures. He, he could not simply run carte blanche and do whatever he wanted to do. And I think that these fees were, were, were part of the, the problem, part of the balancing act. But what, what's disheartening now is that now that the state understands that there's a budget surplus there, that the fees are extremely high, my understanding is that they're the highest in the nation, they yeah. could go back and they could, they could simply change that and, to bring those fees in line with what it costs to actually administer the program, but they haven't done that. And the fact that they haven't done that, I think, speaks to itself as evidence that they are trying to create barriers to entry to people obtaining this medicine. Yeah, that's quite a shame, too. So, so basically, if this measure passes in November, a lot of those issues are going to be gone. Some of them, uh, you know, with, with the barrier to entry, you know, the, the $150 that you pay the state for the card, oftentimes if, if your family physician is part of a larger healthcare network, those, those larger healthcare networks have put prohibitions of their doctors writing the recommendations for, mm-hmm. for medical marijuana. So, so instead, in that vacuum, there have been certification clinics that, that have popped up. And these certification clinics have doctors that really specialize in cannabis medicine but they're not covered by insurance. So, so the average costs on those range between $100 and $150. So you're looking somewhere between $250 and $300 for somebody to be able to obtain a medical marijuana card. Under the adult use program, they wouldn't need that anymore. 
You'll simply be able to walk into the store and purchase it as an adult. So I would expect that the the enrollment on the medical marijuana program would probably decline on, with, with many of those individuals. Right. And as we hear rumors about the rescheduling of marijuana, that prescription problem is federally illegal. That'll go away, I think, with the rescheduling as well. The rescheduling is something that I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah. Uh, the, the rumors have been going yes, around the, for a the, while. But. Those rumors have been going on for, for years now. Um, I'm hopeful because I think it is an acknowledgement by our federal government as to the safety and efficacy of cannabis as medicine, which we all know. Right. It, it's the, the evidence is clear. It's simply that the federal government hasn't caught up with the, the knowledge that is in the general public that cannabis is a safe and effective treatment for many different conditions. Yeah, and I think as more and more states actually pass these measures to either legalize or in the states that don't even have any regulation whatsoever to at least uh, pass medical marijuana laws, I think that our federal government would likely be feeling that pressure a lot more, which is another reason it's so important to pass this here. You'd, you'd hope that our federal government is more responsive than it actually is. We, we currently have 25 states that have some form of either adult use or medical marijuana laws that are in blatant violation of the federal law. More than half of the American population today lives in states where we are in violation of federal law. But the feds don't seem to get the point. They don't seem to be able to catch up. They always seem to be behind on all of these issues. And so it's really the individual states that are forcing the issue. And and Arizona is, is one of many, and it's one of many that will be forcing this issue again this November. Right. I spoke with someone who's running for Senate, Ann Kirkpatrick, and in a casual conversation just asked, are you for this or against it? And she was saying, you know, she believes that it requires a lot more research before she'll jump on board the bandwagon, so to speak. There are a lot of people like her, that feel that way, and I think it's just a lot of knowledge. But what's your position on that? What? Do, how do? How that's do a cop you? Out. S- you think but, so? Absolutely, that's a cop out. There is plenty of research uh, as to the safety and efficacy of cannabis. We know that it's safer than alcohol in every single regard. That fact has been proven by dozens of studies. So there's no question about the safety of cannabis. It, it really comes down to it's a social issue, and people say, "Oh, we need more research." Well, oftentimes the same people that say we need more research are the same people that are, are lobbying to keep cannabis as a Schedule One drug that prevents any research on it. Mm-hmm. We've seen that out of the prohibitionists here in Arizona that say we need more time to study this, we need more research on it, and then when we actually try to conduct that research on it, they make every effort they can to block it. Well, and also, I mean, being Schedule One, it's not really legal to go out and just do research studies. These no, have to no, be. it's extremely difficult. We we saw that with the experience of Dr. Sue Sisley when she was at the University of Arizona prior to her termination. I think as a, as a direct result of yeah. her desire to be able to research cannabis, yeah. and that was simply politics at play and, and dirty politics at that. Yeah, it's really quite unfortunate. So tell me a little bit, if you feel comfortable, about what was behind getting involved in this movement for you with your daughter. Sure. um, I'll give you a little bit of my own personal background. I'm an unapologetic conservative Republican. 
I went to Arizona State University. I graduated from the Barrett Honors College there. I lived in a fraternity house, and I never tried marijuana. It was something that... <laughs> That's an anomaly. <laughs> <laughs> I know people are, people are oftentimes surprised and shocked when I tell them that when, even in, throughout college I didn't try marijuana. And frankly, I was opposed to it because I believed what my parents told me, that it was bad, it was evil, it was wrong. And if you did it, you were likely to end up dead in an alley someplace, probably beat up with a needle hanging out of your arm and all these other scary images. And, you know, hey, I was one of those kids that actually followed the rules and listened to my parents, and so I believed all that stuff. Well, my parents, they've also now changed their position on this as well, thankfully. They've, they've educated themselves and, and come to realize, hey, you know what? It's, it's certainly safer than alcohol in every single regard. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should start having honest conversations with people rather than using fear-based scare tactics and lies. Reefer madness simply doesn't work. Because when you lie to a person and then they catch you in that lie they start to not believe everything else that you tell them as right. well. There's a lot of credibility. And I think there's a lot of parents out there that had these conversations, just like my parents did with me regarding marijuana, that lost credibility on these issues. And so we're sending a horrible message to children when we tell them, hey, marijuana is so so harmful and so horrible. Now, that doesn't mean we should be encouraging teenagers to smoke marijuana. Quite the opposite. This is just like alcohol. This is This is for adults. It's not for teenagers. But we need to be honest with them and have honest conversations. So going back to, to how I got into this, I was, I was simply opposed to marijuana in all, all forms. And then about eight years ago, my first daughter was born. And she was born as a special needs child. Her name is Reese. And Reese was having seizures every single day starting at about the age of three months. Now, she was having between 25 and 35 seizures a day. These are the, the grand mal convulsive type seizures. Each of them was lasting between 8 and 12 minutes. And we, we were on the pharmaceutical merry-go-round. We were doing everything in our power to try to control these seizures and stop the seizures, and nothing was working. It was, it was frankly, it was heartbreaking, and it was a difficult situation. You know, we spent years with Reese where she was simply non-responsive because either she was convulsing and having seizures, um, she was sleeping, or she was screaming. And she had no quality of life. She was simply non-responsive. You know, I had this beautiful little girl that I was facilitating life for, but she had no quality of life. Right. Then in 2010, Arizona passed the medical marijuana law. One of the qualifying conditions was for seizures. Well, as somebody that was dealing with this seizure issue on a, on a daily basis, that naturally caught my eye. So I started doing the homework and the research on this, and I thought that there was something here. So we went down... We went back to her physicians, and we asked her physicians about this. <clears throat> they had three physicians in the room. Now, these are all pediatric neurologists. One of them simply said, I don't know anything about it. I can't speak about marijuana for treatment of seizure control at all. The next one wanted to tell us about his days at Harvard, which were you know, rather entertaining. <laughs> and, and then the, the third one said, I think that we have an opportunity here, and I think that you have everything to gain and nothing to lose. So at that point in time, I tried to procure the type of marijuana that would be best for her, and that was a marijuana that was high in a cannabinoid called CBD and low in a cannabinoid called THC. Now, that certainly wasn't available in Arizona yet, so I was willing to go out of state to try to, to, to get this for her, and I was unable to do so. I was put on a waiting list, and I was over number 4,000 deep Ugh. on the waiting list, so I knew that really wasn't going to be a feasible option for me. So I came back to Arizona and I said, well, if I can't do it through other methods... I'll simply do it myself. 
And so I applied for the medical marijuana license. I was successful in obtaining that license. And then I was successful in growing the type of marijuana that would work for my daughter and, frankly, other children like her. Since her introduction to cannabis about two, a little more than two years ago, her seizures went from 25 to 35 a day. She's not seizure-free. She'll still have a seizure occasionally. She'll have one about every five or six months now, wow. which, is, which is a huge improvement. She's out of a wheelchair. She's walking independently. She's feeding herself independently. She's laughing. She's smiling. She's playing. She's getting into stuff, and she's generally having a very high quality of life. And all of that is 100% attributable to marijuana. Marijuana has been nothing short of a lifesaver for her. It's been a miracle drug. Miracle, yeah. And, and we're very thankful wow. for that. And that's how I became an advocate for marijuana. And that was for the medical marijuana side. But then when I, I now I'm in the business. Uh, I'm, I'm living and breathing medical marijuana. And, and, and then you start to see the, the failures of prohibition. And, and I saw firsthand that marijuana has been, a, prohibition has been an abject failure in every single regard, and it simply makes no sense. So I said, it, this wasn't a matter of, hey, JP's trying to you know, promote marijuana. It's rather, I have an agenda, and my agenda is to promote common sense. And we should, we should be promoting individual liberties and individual freedom and individual responsibility. And all of this dovetails with marijuana. We do not need nanny state government coming in and telling us what we can and can't do, particularly for something that's objectively safer than alcohol. The same people that are out there saying that marijuana is so horrible and frankly making up reefer madness lies, and that's all I can say is these are flat out lies, mm -hmm. are the same people that are going to go home at night and they're going to have a bottle of wine, maybe a few beers, a couple glasses of scotch, and then they're going to fall into their bed and say, oh, I did my good deed for the day trying to keep all these horrible people off of the marijuana while they're stumbling drunk, consuming something that's objectively more dangerous. Where's the common sense in this? Yeah, well, obviously there is no common sense in it, which makes me wonder um, how much of it is, is financial or political gain to continue to proliferate the prohibition. Certainly the, there's an aspect and there's a component of that, but I think it's something that's much more simple and, and much more deeper that they are ideologues. Mm. And, and these ideologues, um, particularly promoting and espousing so-called conservatism, it, it's not that they want to promote limited government and, and individual freedoms. It's rather they want to impose their own form of what they deem their own moral and religious beliefs upon others. Puritanism. And it's very much a Puritanism ideal ideology. And they do so with the threat of our prison system. Mm. That's their tool. You either abide by their puranical ideology or they want to put you in prison for disagreeing with them. It is that simple. It's, yeah, that's astonishing to hear it like that. Yeah. Crazy. But you're in business now, mm -hmm. and you have a business called Arizona Natural Selections. Correct. And with that business, you have two dispensaries, is that correct? That's correct. There's uh, one in Peoria, the 101 in Peoria, so it's on the west side of the Phoenix area, and then the other one in North Scottsdale, Scottsdale Road in Butheris. 
And you also have a cultivation operation. We do. We have a cultivation facility here in the Phoenix area as well that supplies both of those stores. And is there a wide variety there, or is it mainly um, the CBD varieties that you grow? Or We've, <clears throat> we've got it all on the shelf. Okay. Certainly the, the CBD, high CBD, low THC is applicable to, or, to situations like my daughter. I believe that, that we take care of a significant percentage of the pediatrics here in Arizona, as well as another fantastic dispensary called Harvest of Tempe. They really do a great job, and I want to make sure that they get credit for, for participating and taking care of these pediatric special needs children as well. So, but when we look at adults, sometimes thing, you know, the high THC products are extremely valuable for them as well, particularly when it comes to pain management, somebody that's seeking being able to sleep at night because they're yeah. in pain, nausea, appetite stimulant. So it's not just about THC or just about CBD. The THC is equally important because one in absence of the other really does not do particularly well for these medical conditions. So we do grow all of them. We grow uh, at any point in time. We typically are growing about 45 different varieties. Wow. And we always have a minimum of 20 to 25 different strains on the shelf at all times. And then are you also in the formulation business as well? Like after growing these, are you extracting the oils and sure, we, you're on that side of it as well? We do. The, uh, the only products that, that we sell in our stores that we don't produce ourselves are the edibles. And that's simply a line of business that, that I chose not to get into. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when it comes to certainly the flour, the extracts, whether, whether those are what we call hard extracts, like your, your shatter, your crumble, your dabs, or on, on your vapor cartridges, you know, so somebody can can inhale this uh, as a, just like an e-cigarette or a vapor without any of the smoke, it, and that tends to be that's where the the markets are going mm-hmm. because people don't want the smoke. It, right, it's, smoke is messy. It smells bad, and frankly, setting anything on fire and inhaling it generally is not the most healthful thing to do. So people are seeking the the vapor pens as a, as a safer and healthier alternative. Yeah, fewer carcinogens. Absolutely. Wow. So obviously the campaign, if it passes, is going to impact your business. Potentially. We don't know what that outcome will be. Uh, After this passes, there's a rulemaking process that the state will go through that will actually be the implementation of the law itself. We have no idea what those rules will be simply because they haven't been determined yet. So that will have a significant impact on the business. So there, there are many unknowns of, of what the business outcome will be on this. In addition to that, when you look at any marketplace within any industry in the world, there are winners and there are losers. Some businesses do better than others. We can look at, at restaurants here in Phoenix. There are some restaurants that are extremely successful, and then there are many restaurants that aren't and ultimately go out of business. This is no different. This is, this is an industry that laws of economics apply to. There will be winners. There will be losers. Uh, some will be successful and some will fail. So as how it relates to me, I don't know. Yeah. Um, I don't think that anybody out there does know how it's exactly going to affect them other than to say that there are some that will be successful and others that won't be. Right. It's a competitive marketplace. Right. Well, there is one segment of the market that will... Um definitely have a serious disadvantage, and that's your street dealer. <laughs> well, ultimately, it's only economics that will put that street dealer out of business. Mm-hmm. 
you know, if dispensaries are charging prices that are significantly higher, including the taxes, that are, than the street dealer, then then some of those consumers will consent, continue to go to street dealers. Uh-huh. So good point. So we we have to be able to compete with those, uh, but I think that we can deliver a, a superior quality product. We know that it's a safe product. It's been it's been tested. It, it meets rigorous standards for for its safety. Um, Customers will know what's in that product because there will be labeling on it. They will know what the potency of it is. Just like when you look at a bottle of alcohol, you know exactly how much alcohol is in there, and you know that that, that bottle of beer or wine was manufactured to a, a standard uh, that, that meets health department's regulations. We'll have that. The street dealer won't. So somebody will come into a dispensary, and they may pay a higher price than the street dealer, including the taxes that go on with that. But they knew that they know that what they're getting. Mm-hmm. They know that it's a safe product, and they're buying it in a safe environment, rather than meeting a dude in a back alley where they don't know what they're getting. Right. They don't know what they're walking into, and they don't even know if they're going to be able to walk out of that situation. I heard horror stories about a few teenagers gathering after visiting the street dealer and finding. Um, a week later, that they were horribly addicted to heroin, and they—it was not because they chose to smoke heroin. It's because the dealer had actually laced the marijuana they purchased with heroin, and I mean, and they had no idea. I've heard those stories too. I think that they're more urban myth than anything else. I think there's very little credibility to those things. When you look at at this street dealer, the street dealer is only concerned with one thing, and that's making a buck. Mm-hmm. And for for that street dealer to then alter their marijuana with any other substances, whether it's, I've heard the stories of the angel dust, the PCP, the methamphetamines, and and, and now the heroin, they're taking something that's an expensive product that they certainly have a a ready market for elsewhere and and adding it for free to something that they're trying to sell to somebody else. It simply doesn't make a lot of sense. So I think there's... There's probably very, very little of that out there. I think yeah. it's more urban myth than anything else. But that doesn't mean that the marijuana that's being sold in the street doesn't have problems. You know, it, it could be laced with, with chemicals such as, as pesticides, herbicides, fungicides. It could have molds on it. It could have a lot of other problems that aren't necessarily nefariously applied to it and adultered for, for those purposes, but it still has problems. And, and so this should be grown and sold in a, in a taxed and regulated manner so that the customer and the consumer knows what they're getting and they know that it's safe rather than whatever, you know, Billy Bob the grower, you know, grew in his basement and who knows what he applied to it. Right. And what kind of testing do you actually put your product through? Well, under the medical marijuana mm-hmm. program right now, unfortunately, there is no testing mandate. It, right. does, it doesn't exist. I, I read think, that you actually mandated it for yourself. It's self-governed in your business. Yes, we, we have, and that's, that's for our own purposes. We, we hold ourselves to a higher standard. The standard when it comes to the product of the medicine that we, we provide to medical marijuana patients is if I would not give my own daughter this product, I will not put it on the shelf of my store for sale because the fact of the matter is I do give that product to my daughter. So we do hold ourselves to very high standards, and that is why we do the testing. Right. And I know that some of the other things, well, there's, there's mold. 
which can be quite damaging to people. And, and the pesticides, you have a natural method of pest elimination? We do. Uh, the, the greatest risk, is certainly molds, funguses, th- those are problematic. But the reality is, is that there are molds and there are funguses in the air that you and I are breathing right now, yeah, whether it's course. indoors or outdoors. And most of them, the vast majority of them, cause no problems whatsoever. But, but when it comes to the pesticide side of things, that can be truly damaging. Because now you're taking something, you're inhaling these pesticides, or you're ingesting them into your body, that they weren't intended to be consumed in, in, at all, much less in that manner. And, and that can have some, some significant impacts. So what, what we've done is we spend a lot of time, energy, effort in environmental controls so that we don't have those problems. We don't have to treat for those problems. We know that the product is safe simply because we don't apply those bad things to it. It's really that simple. Uh, from my perspective is... If you don't apply anything bad to your product, you know that your product is clean. But the way that you don't have to apply those bad things to it is you're going to spend an inordinate amount of money on environmental controls and doing it right. Value engineering does not work when it comes to providing safe cannabis. Right. And the reason that I was asking you to elaborate on that is I wanted to see, is there something in the campaign to regulate marijuana like alcohol that will put some of those controls. Yes. Okay, good. Yes, That's the what short I answer. The short answer is yes. We mandated that as part of the initiative, so that customers will know that the product that they're receiving has been tested and it is safe. Right. And as a business owner, you've proven that it's still economically feasible to go through those extra steps to make sure that the product is is safe. It's or- expensive. Uh, there's no question about it. It's expensive, and we voluntarily spend um, a significant amount of money every single month and annually and weekly and on and on to make sure that our products are exactly what they, that we say they are and we, we know what they are. I guess what I'm getting at in asking you this is that with the people who are pro-marijuana legalization but um, have been opponents of this particular measure... I think that one of the complaints was there are a lot of controls in place that might hamper productivity and that sort of thing. But you're a business owner proving that you've done this, you've taken the extra steps, you've spent the extra money to make sure that you know, you're adhering to the things that are in the campaign measure, and yet you're still able to make a profit, and it's still working for you, right? Well, Arizona's medical marijuana program operates on a not-for-profit basis. Mm-hmm. But just because you're not-for-profit doesn't mean that you don't have bills to pay. You, you, you still have to, you know... You, you still have to... Uh, you still manage payroll. Your, yeah. You still manage payroll, make make rent every month in your utilities, and, and all the other aspects. So, so while you know, I, as the business owner, cannot receive any pecuniary benefit from the business, which I don't, we we still have to manage it like a business. So yes, we can absolutely do all of these things and deliver a safe quality product to our patients. And it'll continue to be that way even if these rules are in place. No question about it. Yeah, uh, We did not create a free the weed initiative. Right. We created a responsible taxation and regulation initiative that, that takes this away from the criminal black markets and sends the money to our schools rather than, hey, everybody, let's free the weed and put it on every other street corner. That was not our goal. That's not the focus of this initiative. 
And it's certainly not going to be the outcome of the initiative either. Yeah. So eventually, what is it that that you hope people listening who are not actually in favor of this on the fence, what would you what would you say is the most important thing to let them know about the campaign or about the business or about well, they're marijuana not, in general? They're not alone. I come from a very conservative family, and I tend to run in relatively conservative circles. I can't tell you the number of times people say, you know what, I don't like marijuana. I'm totally opposed to marijuana use. I think marijuana is horrible. But I'm voting yes for this initiative because I recognize the abject failure of the policies of prohibition, and I realize that we are better off taxing and regulating it. Even if I don't like it, we're still better off taxing and regulating it so that, that we have some controls over it. Because when you, when you relegate something to the black market, you have no controls. You can do nothing. You know neither who's buying it, who's selling it, where the money is going, or how it's produced. So we're better off taxing and regulating it. And people that are opposed to marijuana at least those that are common sense thinking, Mm -hmm. recognize that simple fact. So these are people that are never going to use marijuana. They're never going to consume marijuana on their own. And they're going to always be against the consumption of marijuana. And I'm fine with that. Mm -hmm. But you can be against marijuana and at the same time be opposed to the failed policies of prohibition. Right. And I think that this this will benefit the state of Arizona. It seems like economically, well, no, socially, in so many ways. Well, there's no question about it. The, the Joint Legislative Budget Committee last week released their own independent report of what they thought the, the, the fiscal impact would be of this initiative. Now, this is supposed to be a nonpartisan, uh, simple governmental agency uh, as, as part of our state legislature that, that scores these things. Now, the way that our state legislature has has responded to all of the medical marijuana or adult-use marijuana issues has not been favorable. And so we we really didn't expect a a favorable outcome from the JLBC. And and I'm not saying that we did necessarily receive the greatest favorable outcome that we we could have from JLBC. But they came out and they said, we're looking at about $82 million a year from the surtax alone going into our public education. Yeah. That's on an annual basis. Wow. So when the Joint Legislative Budget Committee comes out and says, well, I guess $80 million, $82 million a year going to our schools, and we don't necessarily think that they were trying to skew things in our favor, that says something unto itself. If that's not a good enough reason to vote for this, I don't know what is. Because that's 82 million reasons why this money shouldn't go to criminal markets and instead will go to our, to our public education system. That's, that's quite a bit. That's quite a bit. And that's every single year. Wow. We can hire a lot of teachers for that. We can build a lot of schools and we can buy a lot of textbooks despite what the prohibitionist camp says. In fact, last week was really funny when the, with the JLBC came out with their, with their budget, the, the prohibitionist, you know, came out and said, that's not going to buy one textbook. That's not going to buy build one school, and and that's not going to fund one teacher. And I thought to myself, "Wow, with eighty-two million bucks, I would think that you'd be able to buy a couple of books, maybe hire a couple of teachers, and maybe even build a school or two every single year." Yeah. So 
uh, I think that they need to get a grip on the reality of what things cost because if they don't think that $82 million will have a positive impact on our education, what the next question should be, what are they smoking? Right. <laughs> Good question, right? So um, if someone wanted to learn more about the campaign, where do they go for their information? Go to regulatemarijuanainarizona.org. Regulate Marijuana in Arizona dot org. Correct. Okay. And the proper name is Campaign to Regulate Marijuana Like Alcohol. <laughs> and it is absolutely confirmed on the ballot this year. Well, we've submitted our, our signatures to the Secretary of State. They, they've got a 20 days, about 20 days for a validation process. Okay. And then we'll be confirmed. We're not there yet. It's part of the administrative process now. Right, right. Okay. Wow. Oh, and also, just to give a plug to your business, AZ... It's Arizona, Nat- it's Arizona Natural Selections. You can visit us at aznaturalselections.com or visit us in Scottsdale or Peoria. Okay, great. I would like to personally thank you so much for joining us. It's J.P. Holyoke. Um, what a great talk. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I, I encourage honest and thoughtful dialogue, and I appreciate what you're doing. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, we're, we're opening it up, hopefully, and um, the goal is to get this information out to those who just are unaware and don't understand how important this movement is. So please visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com to learn more about J.P. Holyoke and today's topic, or subscribe to our weekly podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please rate it on iTunes. You can also get it on on Android and, of course, on starworldwidenetworks.com. I'd like to thank our amazing engineer, Kyle Pratt, for his work today. And thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Snowden Bishop, the Cannabis Reporter, over and out. And until we meet again, make it a great day. Yeah.